Amen. Well, it's so good to see you all this morning. It's a beautiful day. I love the fall days like this. Like I was going on a prayer walk this morning and just the trees, it just gives me the feels. I love this time and I love where it's just like cold, but not quite too cold where you can see your breath yet, but like right before that. And that's where we're at right now. I'm enjoying it a lot. So anyways, I'm glad to be at church today. It's great to see you. If this is your first time at church here, I just want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here. We pray that you would feel the warm embrace of God, but also of us today. So thanks for joining us. And before I get started in my message, I wanted to pivot for a second here. I wasn't planning on doing this, but, but during, that, or during the worship time, both of the last two songs, I really felt pressed that there's someone here today who needs a miracle in your life. Okay, so I don't know what it is. It could be healing. It could be financial provision. It could be uh, maybe there's relational discord with a family member. I don't know what it is, but I just want to take a moment here to pray into that because I don't want to uh, move on from that if God wants to do a miracle. So can we pray right now? If that's you, just right now, as boldly, can you just kind of slip your hand up? If you need a miracle, I need a miracle personally, so I have something. But it, yeah, let's go back there. We got some hands up. Okay, so we have some miracles we need in this place. There's lots of people's hands up. If you see someone's hands up around you, just put your hand on their shoulder if you if you're comfortable, if you don't know him, maybe don't do that. But if you're comfortable, you can do that. And I want to pray that God would move in these situations. And then I want to hear about how God answers this prayer. Because I believe this week we're going to see miracles happen. So let's pray right now in Jesus' name. So Jesus, this morning we come to you before we even get into your word. And we ask you to move in our lives supernaturally. Just as Katie was saying, you're simple. These truths are simple, Lord. And there's a truth in the scripture, all throughout scripture, that you can do more than we could ever ask or dream. There's the truth that your arm is not too short to save. There's no mountain that's too big for you, Jesus. And right now, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd move mountains all across this room, whether that be a financial provision, a relational healing, or physical healing, emotional healing. God, I pray that you would move mountains in this room in Jesus' name. We trust you for that, and we can't wait to hear the testimonies of what you do this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, thanks for praying with me. I just wanted to be obedient. I kept debating whether or not I should come up during worship. I didn't want to steal Katie's time, so I figured I'd wait till my own time. I get like 40 minutes, so I can use my own time for that. But anyways, if you have your Bibles, you can turn, or turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to continue our Gospel of Mark series. And the reason why we're doing a verse-by-verse series like this is we want to be a church that is absolutely immersed in the Scriptures. We want the Scriptures to be the foundation of our church. We don't want to avoid certain Scriptures, but we want to have a holistic understanding of God's Word. And we believe when we go verse-by-verse, it makes it where we can't avoid Scriptures. Instead, we let the whole counsel of God speak to us and And my prayer is that as we do this, my prayer is that it would enhance your personal time with the Lord as you see how to read Scripture, how to understand it, and then apply it to your life. So this morning we're in Mark 2. We're going to finish up Mark 2 and move into Mark 3. And over the last several weeks, we've been in passages that scholars call the controversy dialogues. And these dialogues are where Jesus and the religious authority the religious authorities of his day clashed. With each of these controversies, the tension between Jesus and these authorities build as as Jesus continues to reveal things about who he is and what he came to do. And these controversies will climax today when the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, decide to collude with the Herodians, who were secular uh, leaders of Jesus' day, to kill Jesus. In verse 6 of chapter 3, we'll see that they come together and they want to take down Jesus. And Mark, he is foreshadowing what will happen at the end of his gospel when the Romans and the Jewish authorities come together to put Jesus on a cross. So let's read verses 23 of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 6. It says this, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
And he said to them, have you never read what King David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then chapter 3, again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. You know that Jesus gets angry sometimes at our hardness of heart specifically. It says, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out. This is what I was talking about. They went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Okay, so the sermon title today is the Lord of the Sabbath, if you're taking notes. And I want to pray as you write that down. So Jesus, this morning we come to you again, and we ask you to speak through this word. We pray that this word would be uh, saturated in scripture, but also, God, we pray that your spirit would empower me as I share this with us. And I pray that each person would hear what they need to hear this morning. So Holy Spirit, have your way, do your thing. We want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last weekend, Emily and I, or Emily brought Jane, who's our three-year-old, here to the church to get ready for a bridal shower. And I had to come to the church anyways to print some stuff off, so I figured I'd come right around the time the shower starts, and I can print my stuff off and then take Jane home with me so Emily can enjoy the shower. And by the time I got Jane to leave, it was around 2.30 or 3 o'clock, which is when she's supposed to nap. You don't want to see Jane at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It is scary stuff. And as we were getting ready to leave... I figured I would grab some brownies because that's what I do. When there's brownies, I grab them. And I got a big piece, the biggest piece there was, and I broke it in half. I gave half to Jane, and I said I would take the other half. But Jane did not like that. She said in her, in her firm voice, which is scary when she gets firm, she says, I want a big piece. I don't want the broken piece. I explained to her that the broken piece was just as big as the other pieces, but she was not having it. She was not having my logical explanation. And slowly her, verse, her voice began to rise, and I knew what was about to happen. She was about to scream so loud that she's going to blow our eardrum. So I grabbed her, and I ran her outside because I didn't want to ruin the bridal shower. After I got her in the car, she got herself even more worked up as she realized that she left her favorite bunny in the kids' wing. I assured her that I would get it for her, so we turned around, we came back, and I went in and got the bunny, and by the time I got back, she was calm, or a bit more calm, but then we got in the car, and I had to go to the gas station, we only had a little bit of gas left, but, and by the time we got there, she was yelling again, because the sun was in our eyes, and she needed sunglasses. Talk about a drama queen. As I pumped the gas, I can still picture this, I'm pumping, I'm looking in, and Abram's in the seat nearest me, I'm looking at him, he's looking up at me like, why would you leave me in here with her? He's so confused. She's screaming her head off as I'm pumping the gas. I finally got her to stop yelling. I drove down the road, our, our two and a half minute drive from the Casey's to our house, and she fell asleep by the time we got home. I hear her snoring back there. And Jane, she's typically well behaved, but man, when she is tired, all bets are off. I slowly and cautiously got her out of the car seat, praying, God, please don't let her wake up. I got her upstairs, laid her down, and she took a beautiful two-and-a-half-hour nap. It was a beautiful time. And, and Jane's drama-filled Saturday afternoon illustrates that 
that we're not ourselves when we're tired. And when we go against the way that our bodies are supposed to work, it wreaks havoc on us. It's safe to say that we're living in an exhausted generation. It's not that we have a harder life than our ancestors did or previous generations did. It's not that we've had to sacrifice more. That's certainly not the case. But it's that we're more discontented, restless, and anxious than those who have gone before us. Although we're the most affluent society in world history, the digital age has made us restless and unsatisfied with who we are and what we have. And there's there's several ways that the digital age has done this. The first is through advertising. So I don't know if you know this, but you're exposed to up to 4,000 advertisements each and every day. And these tell us the same thing. They tell us we need something else to be content and to be satisfied. If you get that towel, I tell you, you will have a great life. Like they always have these commercials where they're at like some tropical location with this towel or soap or whatever. It's like, just because I get the soap doesn't mean I get the vacation too. But they kind of create that desire and you make you think, if I get this thing, it will fulfill something deep within me. It creates this, this sense that there's something wrong with us or something we need to be happy. The second thing that the digital age has done is it's made us really fall into the trap of comparison and envy At the same time that we're exposed to advertisements, we're also exposed to other people's social media feeds, which are their highlight reels for the most part. Some people air all their dirty laundry, but for the most part, they're highlight reels, and then we're tempted to compare ourselves to them. And not just that, but we follow famous people or influencers, which I really don't like influencers. Pray for me. I need to be forgiven for the the bitterness in my heart. Influencers annoy the poop out of me. But anyways, we, we follow these people, Our celebrities have a lot more money than us, and we compare ourselves to them. And although those people represent a small fraction of the world, we compare ourselves. We we want what they have. In this comparison, it turns into envy, which is a sin. And this is an envy is greed for another person's life, and it's it's lack of gratitude for what we have. And the third reason why we're so restless in the digital age is information overload. At the same time that we're Comparing and we're seeing these advertisements, we have all of this information at our fingertips. In previous generations, we had to go to the library and look at an, an encyclopedia to find the answer to our questions. It took some time, but now we can Google search and get a million results in a second. I'm deeply grateful for this. I'm a learner, you know, strength finders. I don't know if you've heard of that, but like your strengths, like my top strength is learner. I love learning stuff. I, I'm grateful for that, but having All this information at our fingertips contributes to discontentment and a lack of satisfaction as no amount of information is ever enough. And we also have more news at our fingertips than ever before. We can know about every bad thing that's happening all around the world all at once. And this creates a cynicism and a helplessness in us. And we end up worrying about things that God doesn't want us to worry about because we have zero influence over them and we can't do anything about it. I'm not saying don't care about what's happening around the world, but what I'm saying is God does not want you to carry everything that's happening around the world. The fourth thing is outrage culture, which is closely linked to this 24-7 news cycle. Right now we live in a culture that tells us that we need to be angry and have an opinion about everything. As Jesus followers, we should be a people who are fiercely committed to justice in the world. But this idea that we have to give mental space and be outraged about every bad thing that's happening in the world is not helpful. There is a God and you're not him. We should surely work against injustice, but it's not our personal job to fix everything that is wrong in the world. And you don't have to post about everything that's going on in the world. The fifth thing, last thing is overconnectivity. Okay, so in previous generations, 
Only a few people like bosses and managers had to take or take their work home with them. But now, if you're a white-collar worker specifically, you're expected to take, or to take your work home with you, or you work from home all day. Both Emily and I, we both work at home. I know I work for the church, but my office is at home, so, so we know that life. There's no separation between work and home. It's, it's right in your home. Even if you don't take work home with you, you have a device that's next to you at all times that can interrupt you, and this creates a sense of anxiety. Like, I'll feel my phone vibrate when it's not vibrating. There's something wrong with that. All of these... All these factors have conspired to create one of the most worried, anxious, and stressed out generations in world history. Is there a way out of this restless moment? That's the question I want to ask this morning, and I think there is. Just as Jane needed a nap to get back to emotional equilibrium, the scriptures give us a practice that can help us live a life of emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual health, no matter what's going on in the outside world. And that practice is the Sabbath. In our passage today, Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of his day for not practicing the Sabbath correctly. And Jesus uses this confrontation as an opportunity to teach them the true meaning of the Sabbath. So I want to look at verses 23 and 24 again. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so it's a typical Saturday afternoon. Jesus and his disciples, they're going for a walk, and they decide to snack on somebody's grain, which I think is funny, like taking someone else's grain, just snacking on it. But the Pharisees, who had been going after Jesus all throughout chapter 2, they use this as an opportunity to accuse Jesus once again, and specifically, or specifically, they accuse him of breaking Sabbath laws. What in the world are they talking about? Why did they think taking an afternoon walk and snacking on some corn was against the Sabbath. Well, before we can answer that question, we need to build a biblical theology of the Sabbath. Okay, so the word Sabbath, it comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to stop. Okay, I like to say Shabbat on Sabbath day. I think it's fun, okay? It means to stop. It's literally one day out of every seven that you stop working. God wants you to stop working. It's a day where you stop striving. It's a day where you stop wanting and worrying about things. It's or things, it's a day to just be with God, rest in his presence, and worship him. God himself modeled this stopping. In Genesis chapter 1, he created the heavens and the earth, the light and the darkness, the land and the water, the plants, the animals, and humanity. And after creating, or taking six days to create the world, the universe, and everything in it, he stops. It says this in Genesis 2, 2 through 3. It says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That's important. He made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so God worked for six days. He busted his tush. He worked hard for six days. I don't know if God can bust his tush, but then he rested for one day. In verse 3, Moses, who wrote Genesis, tells us that God blessed the seventh day. He blessed it, and he made it holy. And these two words, blessed and holy, tell us a lot about the Sabbath. So I want to take each in turn. The first thing, the Sabbath is blessed. Okay, the Sabbath is blessed. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God blesses three things. He blesses the animal kingdom, he blesses humans, and he blesses the Sabbath. He blesses a day. What is the common thread between these three things? Well, all three of these things are life-giving and have the ability to procreate. The animal kingdom and humans in an obvious way through reproduction but the Sabbath, it gives life, and it procreates by filling us back up 
after a long week of hard work. The Sabbath is a chance to cease from all the things you focus on, all the things that consume you, and just rest and be refreshed. We often think that if we work longer hours and don't rest, then we'll get more done, but that's not the case. You know, study after study shows us that's not how it works. In John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which if you haven't read that, I encourage you to read it. I have one extra copy at my house. If you want it, just tell me and I'll give it to you, but you have to read it. But he, or he notes that once we get to 50 hours of work in one week, our productivity starts to plummet. So 50 hours is the threshold. After that, you start to plummet in your productivity. And that happens to be a six-day work week. And he also knows that the French, they tried to implement a 10-day work week after the French Revolution, and it did not work. The economy crashed, the suicide rates skyrocketed, and production actually went down. The six-day work week is wired into creation. God brilliantly designed us to thrive and flourish when we take a day to just stop. Okay, the second thing is the Sabbath is holy. Okay, so when Moses wrote that God made the seventh day holy, it would have been shocking to his audience. In the ancient Near East, where the Jews lived, the gods were found in places, not in time. Okay, so they were found in temples, shrines, or mountains. But Moses is saying that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not found in a place, but he's found in a day. If you want to meet with God, take a day to stop and be with him. By saying that the Sabbath day is holy, Moses is declaring that it's not just a day off. This is important. It is not just a day off, but it's a day to worship God. That doesn't mean you have to sing songs all day. I know some of us don't like singing that much. It means that everything we do on that day is done in a posture of worship, whether that be fellowshipping with your very close friends or eating good food or playing with your children or reading a book or going for a walk. It should all be done with the posture of worship. You can even take a nap with the posture of worship. The Sabbath day is not like any other day. It's a day of worship. And you'll see this clearly again in the book of Exodus where we get the Sabbath within the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath is the only spiritual discipline in the Ten Commandments. That's telling us something about its importance. Okay, in verse 8 of chapter 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, there it is again, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to, it's to the Lord your God. It's to him. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant. If you own a business, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates or the foreigner. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, again, God blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Okay, so the seventh day, it's a day or it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's a day to look at God and trust him to provide. That's a big part of it too. It's saying, I don't control the world. I don't find my own life. I don't provide for myself. I don't get hope from myself. Instead, I get it from God. I thank him for who he is. I stop striving and trying to see something or grab something, but instead I'm just going to look at God all day and be filled with beauty and wonder and delight. It's a beautiful day. I know for some of you, you're like, I don't like the sound of this. I don't want to hang out for one day and do nothing. B&H is one of the largest electronic stores in, in the United States. Maybe you've heard of B&H. Whenever I'm buying stuff for the church, I, I always stumble upon B&H, and it's run by Jewish people. If you didn't know, Jews observe the Sabbath from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. And B&H 
closes their shop and their online shop at 1 p.m. on Friday so they can prepare for the Sabbath. They take time in the afternoon to prepare, and then they don't open at all on Saturday. On top of that, they close for 22 other holidays and close for two one-week periods throughout the year. I actually looked at their website yesterday. I was like, I'm going to try buying something, see what happens. I go on their website, and it says that online shopping will not be available until 7.15 Eastern Eastern Standard Time. And then under it, it said, thank you for your patience as we observe Shabbat. You may still add items to your cart if you wish to check out later. And there was an article where the communications director of B&H was asked why they don't open their store on Black Friday, which is obviously the busiest day of the year. They're open till one, but they close it at one. They asked him, why do you guys do that? And he said this simply. He said, we respond to a higher authority. Booyah. Beautiful. Come on, we need more people like that. Okay, the Sabbath is a day that we stop, rest, worship, and also, I love that, submit to the highest authority in the universe. It's a day to stop striving, worrying, and achieving. It's a day to just be with God. God cares about, or cares more about who you are than what you do. He cares more about being with you than you doing or doing anything for him. God wants to be with you. One day a week, he wants you to just rest in his goodness and his provision. Like God, for six days, we should work hard. I'm not saying don't work hard. You should work hard. You should build and create. You should subdue the world, as it says in, in Genesis 1. But then on one day each week, you should stop and marvel at your authority and your provider. The rhythm of six days of work and one day of rest is how we were created to function. If we go against it, we are going against our very design. H.H. Farmer, which is a great name, says this. If you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. You get splinters. Maybe the reason why you're so stressed is you never rest. Maybe God wants you to stop striving and he wants you to trust. There's debate over whether Christians are supposed to keep the Sabbath today, but I think this debate misses the point. Regardless of if the Sabbath is a binding command, it's wisdom, right? It's, it's smart. God did it himself. We see it's wired into creation. And we don't have to be commanded to do wise things, right? We don't have to be commanded to, eat con- or to not eat concrete or to take a shower. Some of you need to be commanded to take a shower. I'm just playing. You're all clean here. But the point is we don't have to typically be commanded to do these kinds of things that are just good for you. I tend to think that it's... It's still a command today, and the reason why is all the other Ten Commandments are still in effect. There are some scriptures that appear to, or to reinterpret the Sabbath and create more flexibility around it, but I think this idea of stopping and resting for 24 hours is still something God wants us to do, but you can disagree with me on that because you know, scholars disagree on that, and no one really knows. But the point is, a lot of people think it's not a command, but, or, but regardless, it's wisdom, and it's a good thing to do. It's a way to keep in step with the way the universe works. But the key is that we don't turn the Sabbath into some legalistic rule that becomes a burden. Because this is what the Pharisees did, and this is what Jesus was trying to correct. They took the Sabbath, which was a gift from God, and they made it into a burdensome rule. When Jesus' disciples pluck heads of grain, the Pharisees accused them of doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So why did they think it was unlawful? Well, there's a law in Exodus that says you can't reap or farm on the Sabbath. But I think it's quite the stretch to say that picking a kernel of grain is farming. I don't think they were so much breaking the law as they were violating the 
extra biblical rules that religious leaders had added on to that original Sabbath command. Okay, so there's 613 commandments in the Torah or in the first five books of the Bible. Okay, that's enough commands for me. Okay, that's going to get me through. I don't need any more. But what happened was an oral tradition called the Mishnah, it grew up around the Torah that added 1,500 more rules on top of that. And specifically, they added 39 types of activity that you could not do on the Sabbath, which included some things you might expect, like you can't harvest or hunt, but also things you would not expect, like you can't tie a knot, you can't sew more than one stitch. One stitch is okay, but two, uh uh-uh. You can't write more than one letter. And the Pharisees were so concerned, the reason why they did this, the Pharisees were so concerned that they might break a law that they did what scholars call built a fence around the Torah. Katie talked about this a bit last week. They built a fence around the Torah. So they added these extra rules to ensure that they didn't accidentally break a law. They knew that Israel's sin and disobedience is what got them exiled and what got them put under foreign oppression. And they thought that if they could get them to obey the rules, then God would deliver them from their plight. So they were so concerned about breaking the Sabbath that they built all these other rules around it. So the Pharisees here, they're more accusing Jesus of violating their rules than they're accusing him of breaking the law itself. And Jesus, he, he defends himself by pointing to an obscure story. It's a weird story about King David in the Old Testament. In Mark 2, 25 through 26, he says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Okay, so Jesus, he's, he's pointing to a time in King David's life when he was anointed king already. They, or Samuel the priest had anointed him king, but he hadn't actually become king yet because Saul was still ruling. He was still on the throne. He was still alive. And actually, David was on the run from Saul as Saul was trying to kill him because, you know, David was kind of stepping on his toes a little bit. In hunger and desperation, David... And his men went into the house of God on the Sabbath and ate the bread that was supposed to be set aside for the high priest or for the priest. Jesus is saying that just as the law allowed for David's need to override the ritualistic rules, his disciples' hunger on the Sabbath day overrode the rules about not plucking grain. Okay, so what's easy to miss here, though, is that Jesus is making a much larger and more important point. Jesus is putting himself on par with King David. Okay, so King David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. And he was the precursor. He was like the model of what the Messiah would be like. The Messiah was the person who was going to come and save Israel from their sin and their oppression. David was like the guy who looked like what the Messiah was going to look like. Israel was waiting for a Messiah to come in the line of King David, who who walked in the spirit of King David, to come and rescue them from foreign oppression. As Mark has already made clear, Jesus is that Messiah. He is that king. However, in the story, his followers and his opponents hadn't quite understood that yet. And by equating himself with King David, Jesus is hinting, which he does. We saw it last week too. He's hinting that he is the Messiah. Like David, he's already anointed king. He's on the run. People are trying to kill him. They're coming after him. He's gathering support. He's building an army. And he's waiting for his time to come. Ooh, I love that. That's good. That's really good stuff. I read that in a book this week. I love that stuff. I hope you like that. Just look at what David's, or not David, what Jesus is doing here. He's hinting, he's saying, I am the person you've always longed for. 
Ooh, so good. Okay, verse 27. We'll move on. It says this. You know, Jesus continues his argument. He says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is important. In other words, the Sabbath wasn't meant to be, again, a burdensome rule for people to follow to prove that or they were right before God, or, or to earn something from God. Instead, it's a gift for humans for their flourishing. Okay, so the next thing I want you to write down is this. The Sabbath is a gift for human flourishing. It's not a rule to gain right standing with God. Okay, so in the legalistic culture of first century Israel, they desperately, or desperately needed to hear that the man, or that man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not a rule to gain rightness before God. The Pharisees failed to realize that we cannot earn our way into God's presence. There's no amount of rules or, or rituals that, or that we can keep that can get us right before God. Instead, God himself must come and save us. They, they missed the fact, too. They missed the fact that this rescue was standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus. In our culture today, though, we don't struggle with legalism like the Pharisees did. Sure, in every group of people, there's some legalists. I know there's some legalists in this house. You're like, give me some more rules to follow. But for the most part, in the Western church, we lean more towards what's called licentiousness. What is licentiousness? Is that just a fancy word? No, that word, it means that we don't really think we need to follow any rules. Like, we're under grace, baby. I do whatever I want. Come on. You can sin all the time. I'm kidding. You're not going to say that. But this idea that we don't need to keep any rules, we don't need to obey God because Jesus has already died for us. That's more what we struggle with, is, is thinking we don't need to follow any guidelines or rules. So I think we need to hear more of the first part of the command, the part that says the Sabbath was made for man. We need to know that the Sabbath is a gift that helps us flourish. Jesus celebrates and affirms the Sabbath's purpose of helping us rest and worship. Pastor Robert Morris tells an amazing story about the Sabbath in his book called Take the Day Off. On February 9th of 1945, a guy named Ralph Maloon, who was the president of a boat manufacturer called Correct Craft, got a telegraph from the U.S. Army that asked him how many boats he could build in 19 days. The Allied forces in World War II needed to push the war into Nazi Germany, and the only way they could do that is if they could move tons of, or tons of equipment and tens of thousands of men across the Wine River. And they needed specifically 569 storm boats that could quickly get across the river. And they reached out to Correct Craft and, and two other boat manufacturers to see if they could build these boats quickly, specifically in 19 days. And the, or the Maloon family prayed about the task before them and committed to producing 300 of these boats by February 28th. And they made that decision on February 10th. So they had 19 days, again, to produce 300 boats. And they normally, just to put this in perspective, they normally manufactured two boats per day. Okay, so the task before them seemed impossible. And what made it even more impossible was, as committed Christians, they closed their factory on Sunday. They didn't believe in working on the Lord's Day and felt it was wrong to ask other people to do so. And the government advisors, they told them, they said, if you have any chance of meeting this deadline, you need to keep the factory open seven days a week. I can't help but ask myself what I would do in that situation. I know myself, so I know what I would do. Well, I hope I wouldn't do this. Pray for me. But I try to do, I try to do things on my own strength. I would have been tempted to say, hey, let's keep it open. It's just like a tiny window of time. Let's keep it open seven days a week during this period. But they held to their convictions, and they kept the factory closed on Sundays. They told the government, or the government officials that they were setting out with faith and that God would see them through. 
uh, the president, he saw his company's stand of faith as an opportunity to demonstrate God's power to the skeptics and doubters. And they got off to a really slow start, but they prayed through. And the Lord helped them to actually get ahead of schedule and get their 300 boats done a few days early. And then the other two companies who were working seven days a week, 24 hours a day, they had fallen behind. So the government asked them if they could build 100 more boats in the last few days, and the Lord miraculously helped them with that too. So they built 400 boats in 19 days when they typically built two boats per day. And for weeks, people came from all over the United States to see the place where 400 boats were built in 19 days without infringing on the Sabbath. It was an indication that the Lord had again honored the obedience of his servants. We need to remember the Sabbath, and we need to remember that it was made for us. It's God's gift to us. At the same time, we need to remember that it's not meant to be a burden. And then Jesus, he takes his argument a step further in verse 28. Let's look at it. It says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so when Jesus says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's making an outrageous claim to his opponents. He's saying that he is over the Sabbath. He is the one who instituted the Sabbath in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2. He, he's equating himself with God. Okay, Jesus was making some outrageous claims. If Jesus is just a teacher to you, like someone, hey, I want to follow his teachings. I don't really think he's God, but I'm going to follow his teachings. He's a pretty crazy dude to decide to follow if you don't actually think he's God, right? He's, he's saying here, I was in the beginning. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And because of this, I have the right to reinterpret the law and override your interpretation. Okay, so following this clash of the Pharisees, Jesus then takes it a step further. He goes into the synagogue. I love Jesus. Sometimes he's just like, pow, pow, pow. He goes in the synagogue. He finds a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. He says, stand up in front of everybody. Like, who would want to do that at church right now? Stand up. you got a withered hand. It's all messed up. They're like, hey. He has the person stand up. And then he says this in verse 4, chapter 3. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Which makes sense. Like, what are they supposed to say? Yeah, you should kill him or, or let him die or let his hand stay like that. It then says that he looked at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. The Pharisees had totally missed the point of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were the ones who were supposed to lead people closer to God. But they had missed the point of the Sabbath. And this grieved Jesus deeply. It even led to a righteous anger. At the, after the Pharisees failed to respond to this question, he proceeds to heal the man's hand and restores it to full working order. And by doing this, Jesus illustrates the true purpose of the Sabbath. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath is a day for restoration and trust in God. Just as this man's hand came to full working order by an act of God on the Sabbath, our souls come to life as God does what only God can do. As we Sabbath, we acknowledge that the world keeps on spinning without our work and without our efforts. We acknowledge that Jesus is our salvation. And we let him restore us from the toil of the week before. When we Sabbath, we trust in the provision of God and let him restore our souls. Sabbath is the way that we find life. In verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Ironically, this is very ironic. The ones who claimed to protect God's law decided to collude with their oppressors. The ones they're trying to overthrow, they decided to collude with their oppressors to kill 
on the Sabbath day. And what they failed to realize is that their killing of Jesus or of the Lord of the Sabbath would actually lead to the salvation that they so desperately wanted through keeping the Sabbath. 1 Peter 2.24 says this. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. When they killed Jesus, they helped secure our salvation. With that said, I want to circle back to verse 28. It said that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus says this, he's not just saying that he's over the Sabbath. He's not just saying that he's God, but he's saying that he is the Sabbath. He is the one who can give us the deep spiritual rest we need. In Genesis 2, God did not rest because he was tired, but because he was satisfied with his work. His work was completed and he stepped back and took a chance to enjoy it. In the same way, when we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in his finished work through his resurrection, we can have that same deep sense of satisfaction that God felt in Genesis chapter 2. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can know that we do not have to work to earn anything or prove anything anymore. He has paid the price for our sin. He has nailed our sins to the cross. On the cross, which we'll read about in a couple years, in Mark 16, it'll take a little bit. He declares that it is finished. All your workings, all your efforts, all your strivings to be right with God or to be right with the world, all your efforts to be something or be someone, they are finished. All you got to do is come to the Lord of the Sabbath and you can find eternal spiritual rest in God's presence as you have been made right with God. To all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you trust in the Lord of the Sabbath, you are a child of God and you are right in his eyes. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 says this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Come on, somebody. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You can take all the days off you want. You can take all the vacations you want. But if you miss this truth, you're always going to be tired. You're always going to be restless. You're always going to be dissatisfied and discontented. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Because of the Lord of the Sabbath, we have nothing to prove in the presence of God. Jesus has proven it all on our behalf through his perfect life and sacrificial death. This was the truth that the Pharisees desperately needed to hear. They did not need to work for God's approval anymore. So with that said, yes, we need to practice the Sabbath in our weekly rhythm. We need to take one day in seven where we rest and worship, but we also need to find eternal Sabbath rest in Jesus. We need to rest in his finished work on our behalf. So with that said, the main idea this morning is this. If you're taking notes, the Lord of the Sabbath invites us into weekly and eternal spiritual or eternal rest. I've always tried to take at least a day off each week. And I used to take these days to take care of the lawn, do some chores, go shopping, you know, seek out entertainment, just kind of do the things I don't have time for in the rest of the week. And last year, it was around this time last year actually, Emily and I had a come to Jesus moment. Come to Jesus moment. You know those moments? And we discovered the importance of the Sabbath. And we realized that although we enjoyed our days off, 
it felt like we often got to the end of those days being more tired than we were before and actually less connected to God than we were before. And for the last year, we've been doing our best to set aside Friday night at sundown through Saturday night at sundown as our Sabbath. So if, if you ever text me on Friday or Saturday and I don't respond, that's why, just so you know. But we do that because I work on Sundays. I don't know if you knew that. I'm pastor of this church. So I work here. You know, so we Sabbath from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. And at that time, we only do things that help us stop, rest, worship, and delight in God. That's our grid. Stop, rest, worship, and delight in God. So we try not to really do anything other than rest, you know, or worship, or delight in God and his good world. So for us, this looks like eating good food. It looks like spending time in the word. It looks like taking time to read, or going for walks, or enjoying nature. And we may watch a movie or enjoy some entertainment in moderation, because I don't know about you, but when I watch six hours of Netflix, I feel more tired afterwards. But we, we try to keep our screen time limited, and, and we attempt to keep our phones off or at least keep them on the charger away from where we are. We try to detach from the world's pursuits and just trust in God and rest. As much as the Sabbath is life-giving, I do have to keep reminding myself that it's a gift to be enjoyed. It's not a rule to be endured. Okay, so, and this actually really applied this week. I'll be honest with you, this last week was a crazy week in the Quimby household. Abram was sick all week, and I had two sermons to preach, so I fell way behind in my work, and I ended up working for a few hours on my Sabbath yesterday. I wrote about the Sabbath, I did work on my Sabbath, okay? So talk about feeling hypocritical. <laughs> and when I went to bed last night, I'll be honest with you, I was feeling really guilty. I broke my Sabbath the day before I was going to preach on the Sabbath. What a hypocrite. However, I think God used it. Because as I laid there, I felt like I heard the still small voice of the Holy Spirit speak to me. And I'm not claiming this happens all the time, but I felt it in this moment. I felt like the Holy Spirit said, Daniel, that was my whole point when I said that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You don't have to keep the Sabbath to prove anything to me. Yes, I want you to keep the Sabbath. It's good for you. It's an act of trust. It's obedience. But I don't want you to shame yourself for not being perfect at it yet. You had a pretty crazy week. As I drifted off to sleep, the reality that Jesus is my Sabbath rest was pressed into my heart. Because I'll be honest with you, this sermon, I, I love it, but it wasn't really pressed into my heart until I slept last night and really let that truth hit me. I found peace and rest in the arms of the Lord of the Sabbath. I have nothing to gain, nothing to prove in his presence. He's proved it all on my behalf. Okay, so with that said, we're still novices at best at the Sabbath. It's been a huge adjustment for us from our old ways of doing things, and we're still growing. But we're dreaming about how we can continue to make our Sabbath better. Okay, so for you this week, I want to encourage you with the practice, and you may have guessed it, the practice is the Sabbath, okay? The practice this week is the Sabbath. And actually, today should be your Sabbath. You know, for most people, Sunday would be your Sabbath. So I encourage you, rest today, take a nap, chill out, worship Jesus, take it easy. If you were going to work today, uh-uh, no, not in G. <laughs> Although I did it yesterday. <laughs> if you're going to work today, don't do it. In Jesus' name, rest take a break. I want to encourage you with a couple guidelines as you head into this. First, pick a 24-hour time slot. It could be Sundays. I think Sundays is good. It could be a different day. I would suggest specifically Saturday at sundown through Sunday at sundown. There's something about having your sleep time in the middle that just is really beautiful. So I encourage you to do that and include church as a part of your Sabbath. Okay, second, I want to encourage you to turn your phone off as a way to resist the normal rhythms of the world. Third, do things that you enjoy and that help you rest, okay? 
pleasure stack, okay? Stack pleasure things on top of each other, like habit stacking, if you've heard of that. Just do a bunch of things you really enjoy. Eat all the food you really like. That's what we did yesterday. We went out to eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner. Okay, I'm not gonna lie to you. So <laughs> that's a problem we have anyways, but uh, it was a good day, okay? We had some good food. But the fourth thing I wanna encourage you with is to worship and delight in God. And this is gonna look a little bit different for everyone, but that's my encouragement for you. And the last thing I wanna encourage you with is if you have not found true Sabbath rest yet in Jesus, I believe that today is your day. The world we're living in is hardwired to make us restless and worried and stressed. And the enemy has engineered our current moment in such a way that it wages war on our souls. The only way you can find life and find it to the full is if you come to the Lord of the Sabbath and trust in his finished work on the cross. Because he kept all the rules, he died in your place and he rose from the dead, we can have true eternal rest. All you must do is trust in his work on your behalf. All you must do is find your home in him. So with that said, let's stand up all across this room. The prayer team can come to the front now and we're gonna move into a time of prayer and response. If you're here this morning, or you're watching online, thank you for watching. If you're watching online, we want to give you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus and find true Sabbath rest in his presence. Okay, so what I'm gonna do is I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. It's gonna be between you and God, okay? I'm gonna count to three. When I do, if that's you, if you wanna put your faith in Jesus for the first time or recommit your life to him, I wanna give you a chance to do that. And when I count to three, I just want you to slip up your hand so I know who I'm praying for, so I, I can see who I'm praying for. And that's just a signal to God saying that you want to trust in him. So if that's you, slip, your, slip up your hand on three. One, two, three, slip up your hand all across this room. I see that hand, I see that hand. Is there anyone else in this room this morning? All right, you can put your hands down. I'm just gonna pray a simple prayer of repentance and trust in Jesus. And you just pray that prayer in your heart. So Jesus, this morning we come to you Lord of the Sabbath, we come to you and we find our rest in you. So Lord, for those who want to put their faith in you, or recommit their lives to you this morning, they are coming to you and they're trusting in you. They're trusting in you. And God, I pray that as we do that, that, that you'd make our hearts come to life all across this room. So for those who have been separated from you, God, I pray that right now they would become children of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, second way to respond is a simple thing. If you're just saying, hey, I wanna start practicing the Sabbath. I want you to slip up your hand right now to God. This is a signal to God saying, I wanna start getting this into my life. Be so bold, say, hey, I wanna start resting. We all wanna rest, right? But, but Sabbath, okay, so if that's you, I'm just gonna pray for you quickly here and then we're gonna move into worship. So Jesus, for those who wanna practice the Sabbath, I pray right now that you would give us wisdom on how to do it. I pray, I pray that you give us grit to keep pushing through when it's hard. And I pray that we would feel the effects of it, Lord, that it would change and transform our lives. God, we love you and we thank you for everything you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.